This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, while some students returned to classrooms this week, leaders from New Orleans public schools joined Mayor LaToya Cantrell to plea with parents, business owners, and the community at large to urge all students to attend school as attendance continues to be a problem. A U.S. District Judge ruled last week that the City of New Orleans must move forward with the building of the jail facility known as Phase 3. This week, the City responded with a notice of appeal. And a committee of the New Orleans City Council introduced a measure to restart a moratorium on electric and gas service shutoffs by Entergy New Orleans, which had expired last summer. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining me this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hi, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Marta, first up in education, at a press conference earlier this week, New Orleans Mayor LaToya Cantrell and NOLA Public Schools District officials pleaded with the community to help ensure students are at classes daily as attendance rates continue to trend below normal. Some students were back in school at campus. How does this phased in return plan work? Right, so we had this, um, we're coming off a three week, basically suspension of in-person classes. Um, And the first people who got to go back are the youngest students. So we have kindergarten through eighth grade students and mainly you're gonna see K through four students who are back in the classroom. Um, and high schoolers will be able to go back after Mardi Gras. Okay. How, what's happening with um, COVID in schools? Uh, COVID cases con- continue to decline in the district. And when I say in the district, it just means students or staff who have it. We don't necessarily know how they got it, but anyone who's associated with a district school. And those cases have gone down over the last three weeks. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily know if that is because of the closure or because of just kind of the general trend in the country. We talked to uh, uh, Dr. Susan Hassig, who's an epidemiologist at Tulane University, and she basically said, you know, that's not a conclusion that anyone can draw. One thing that she said that I thought was interesting was that she said this is something that we're seeing across the country. And, you know, what does the whole country have in common? That's something that she would look for, and that is the holiday season and now this decline, you know, a month later. So she she thinks it's just associated with people behaving better after the holidays. I would say that I, I think we're seeing some pushback on this reopening plan, um, you know, particularly from teachers who are understandably concerned uh, about, about their health and going back to in-person school. The contention being some, in some places that, you know, it looks like the closure worked, cases are down in the schools, but that could have something to do with it. We don't know because cases are also down citywide and 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 around the country, as, as Marta mentioned. So it's very hard to figure out what's going on with with the the small amount of data that we have. And Dr. Hassig also worked on a study that looked at cases in schools and whether or not you know closures actually brought down cases. And when they look when they did that study, the thing that the data point that they used was hospitalizations, not literal cases or test positivity percentage, which are things that we um, end up focusing on a lot, I think, because those are those numbers, I guess, seem more easy to understand or digest. Right. The district is is still 
kind of hedging their bets on this because they're 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 waiting until after Mardi Gras to do a, a full reopening. So they do want it, to. It, it does seem apparent that they want to keep studying the data on this until the next holiday is over. Right. We really have to wait and watch for that because the two big bumps we've seen in the schools were after Thanksgiving and after Christmas and the winter holiday. Um, and then, as we know, across the country, we saw big bumps after Memorial Day and after the 4th of July. So locally, we have an interesting situation approaching. <laughs> right. And there was a story yesterday on NOLA.com that hotel occupancy at 60% already. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which is you know, a, a, a remarkable upswing from where it was earlier in the year. Right. When we, I, I remember, you know, especially early in the pandemic, it was down in the, in the single digits. Exactly. And I have to say, their front page yesterday was, the big headline was hotel occupancy going up, and the headline, you know, just below it was, you know, another spike expected with the British variant of the virus. Right, 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 right. So... Meanwhile, school attendance for those kids um, who are who are attending virtually is down, and in-person attendance is down. Both. It's it is definitely down system-wide, and that's for virtual and in-person students. Um, but you know, officials have certainly told us that it it is more difficult to get students who are attending virtually to actually get to school. Do they actually break out the the numbers of attendance? You know, attendance uh, uh, declines in uh, in person versus virtual, or are they just? Is this just what they're saying? It's all lumped together. I wish they would do that because that would be really interested to see. Um, we had one counselor yesterday who spoke at the mayor's press conference who said, "You know, every day I hear excuses like a student who missed their homeroom, so now they're not logging in, but it's only nine a.m. You still should be logging in." <laughs> Hmm. And at the press conference, you you wrote about the plea from the mayor to the whole community asking everybody to help. I mean, she basically said if if there are kids who live on your block, if there are students who live on your block and you, you know, you see them during the day, help ask or help out. And what can you do? You know, how can you help this student get to school, whether that would be in person or virtually? Um, I think we know a lot of students in our community are having challenges, whether it's internet access, which the district has made great strides to provide, but there's still, you know, issues that happen. So how can the community help people get to school? I mean, on Monday, we had like a giant internet outage across the city. And I just asked on Twitter, did this affect anyone? And I had teachers respond and say, oh, yeah, kids missed my class today. And I had a parent respond and say, yep, my kids were marked absent because the internet was out. So I'm curious about like the, I've been thinking about like the metrics that I guess like you would normally use um, in an education context for when like absences are a problem or when kids are becoming disengaged. I'm wondering if there's any talk about like maybe a first grader missing, you know, 10 days of school this year doesn't mean the same thing that it might have been a different year. Like maybe parents aren't looking at like a day, a missed day of school having the same value as it used to? Is that at all part of the I think parents and educators alike are thinking that they're, they are and they aren't thinking that way. They are thinking that way and that this is a pandemic and like maybe my kid just needs to play outside instead of staring at a screen for six hours. And then I would say they aren't necessarily thinking that way in terms of we still value education and we want kids to be going to school, but you know, this is kind of a crisis situation. So we're just doing our best to maintain. I mean, 
And, and I think you see that all the way up to the New Orleans Police Department, who has suspended truancy um, enforcement because you can't tell if a kid is on an asynchronous schedule or a synchronous class schedule, so you can't be mm. enforcing truancy efforts. And there was something in the story about um, there was an urging of business owners to please stop, stop using these kids when they should be in school in your business. Yeah, and that's, that's something I hadn't heard until that point. So I'm, I'm curious to learn more about that. Although the other part of that I'm interested in is if you do have an asynchronous class schedule, which means you can you know basically watch your classes or log on at any point in time, then maybe you can work during the day and do high school at night. I'm not... I don't necessarily want that to be the case, but if you're in a tough spot, maybe that's what you need to be doing. All right. Well, thank you, Marta. Thank you. Nick, in criminal justice, we have some updates uh, about last week's big story. The district judge last week had said that the city must move forward with phase three. This week, we weren't sure if they were going to appeal, but um, this week they made a decision about that. What's the latest? Yeah, so... uh... Tuesday evening, the city filed its notice of appeal to the district court judge, so they will be appealing that ruling, and it's a process that, you know, could take several months to to a year to to find out what the appellate court has to say. And then, meanwhile, we, we found out a little more information about kind of the status of phase three and and when the city predicts that it's going to be to be actually finished with uh, the construction of that facility. So you have kind of a, a interesting situation right now where the city is is moving forward with the construction of a facility that they're simultaneously trying to uh, avoid building altogether in federal uh, court. What was their update on estimate of completion? So they told the judge at a, a, a status conference um, yesterday on Wednesday that they were anticipating um, about 30 months, um, which would put the completion date somewhere in, in kind of the summer 2023 range. And that, that was interesting because when the city had been providing updates um, going up until until last summer, they had been projecting that, that the building would be completed in summer of 2022. The reason for, for this new uh, kind, of, kind of extra year delay isn't entirely clear, you know, the officials for the city cited COVID and and the kind of robust hurricane season that, that we had this year as as reasons for the for uh, you know their them needing an extra year to, to complete this project but it's not entirely um, clear to me at least what those what those delays are caused by yeah from your reporting it was interesting I was curious about that um, they, they sort of they kind of got into macroeconomics, but they didn't say specifically like what it, what is it about the hurricane season, for example, that would that would stop the work that was going on before because they're not in the they weren't in the construction phase during the hurricane season and they aren't now. Uh, they're still in the design and you know pre-engineering phase, isn't that right? Yes, and you know I watched this hearing and it seemed like something that the the judge was sort of hovering around but didn't want to ask directly because I just think he didn't necessarily that you know at this point uh it it seemed like he was trying to be forward looking um but I mean you know he said he basically said you suspended work this summer and failed to inform the court and when you did inform the court we ordered you to continue working and he said it's my understanding that you've been you know continuing to work this entire time 
So when they gave him that that updated uh, timeline, the logical question would have been like, why, if if you hadn't been working for only five days, why why a year long delay? Um, but he didn't he didn't really directly ask that question, and, and I kind of think there's some some degree of or some desire in this litigation to to not go back and and argue over every every little point because 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 they've done it already. They've gone over every little point. Nick, as far as I've seen, COVID has not been delaying construction. It's been speeding it up. <laughs> Things yeah. are less complicated. <laughs> yeah, like I say, the, the answers that they gave weren't entirely clear. So filing this appeal doesn't trigger any sort of legal impetus or allowance for them to stop. There's no indication of that that, that I can see. Um, I had been wondering if they were maybe going to try uh, try and file some sort of stay of the order. Um, I'm not an expert in in how that would work, and and even some of the the lawyers I talked to <clears throat> said they weren't entirely sure what the process would be if the city wanted to try and stop work on the facility. Right. But at least yesterday, there was no inclination of that. Uh, there were officials for the city that were talking about the timeline going forward as if that, that was uh, what they're planning to do. So so we'll see. Charles, do you find that interesting? None of us are attorneys here, but um, I, I find it interesting that there's this legal battle about whether or not to continue a construction project and it's being appealed, and yet it, it continues on apace. I'm, I'm surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting to me as well. I mean, I've seen cases where, um, you know, filing an appeal would would uh, would come along with, you know, sort of a stay or a suspension. Um, but, you know, like like the rest of us here, I'm not an attorney. And uh, even if I were, apparently, um, apparently some attorneys aren't even sure, according to Nick. So right, right. Uh, it, it's 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 an interesting situation all around. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, another thing, I'm not sure how much this is factoring into to the city's thought process, but but the current kind of status of the facility is right now they they're about 75% done with the design. Um, but they need to go through these two administrative processes. Um, one will be bringing the the design before the city planning commission and before the city council to get an amendment to the zoning ordinance. And then there's another separate FEMA process. And they're anticipating that these two processes are going to take around six months. So, you know, they may be looking at these processes as 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 kind of a buffer, they're not going to actually be digging in and doing construction um, during that time, from what I understand. So, you know, if those things go smoothly and they're still fighting it out in, you know, federal court when they want to break ground, maybe they'll try and, and find some way to, to delay that in, in the court. Um, but the other thing is that at the hearing on, on Wednesday, the judge was very adamant that they're, that there not be any delays. He was clearly frustrated with how long everything is taking. So I think it's very unlikely that there's going to be any sort of approval from at least the district judge for them to stop stop work. Okay. So I actually, Nick, before you were here, I like half-acidly kind of covered this story. Um, but the last thing I had written about, I think, was at the city planning commission. So that still has to go back to the, because they denied it, right? Well, so that could they delay it, like in theory, forever? <laughs> that was well, the so, so what happened there was that that was really about the temporary detention center. There was language uh, in there about phase three. 
people, and we actually, Nick and I went through this a little bit this week and didn't include it in the story because it's just, it's it's too much. But, but basically, it's, that was about TDC. The City Planning Commission voted that down. The council came up with a compromise and, and, and voted it through. But though that proposal mentioned phase three, it didn't actually authorize phase three, which I was completely unclear on because the proposal that one that got through in council lifted the bed cap and it was already zoned for a prison so i thought that that would allow it to to build a new jail there but apparently there was another provision in the original 2011 ordinance that said if you build a new building you have to get another city planning commission approval separately okay yeah. so so what happens cuz the mayor can't f- i mean this is Theoretical, but the city, like, Cantrell can't force the city planning commission to do anything. So could the judge hold the city accountable for something that an independent body does? This is the, yeah, I'm trying to figure it's that out. Now, I mean, so this, this process got started in 2017 once, and the city attorney basically went in front of the council and said, you're going to be held in contempt of court if you don't pass this. And so I think that there's likely a situation coming up in the next six months where that's going to happen again. Um, but this time it's going to be even weirder because the city doesn't want to build it. And so they're going to be bringing this proposal in front of the council that that they don't want to pass, but are telling probably going to have to tell them that we're all going to be held in contempt of court if it doesn't pass. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I think, I think that's going to be interesting. Fascinating. Thanks, Nick. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, along with the Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, my name is Chris Adulam, and I am the social media manager for the Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on our donations to fund our work. Will you please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelensnola.org donate? Thanks for your support. Okay, Michael, there was a moratorium on shutoffs for customers last summer from local utility Entergy, which expired last summer. They began shutting off service to commercial customers late last year, and they were planning to start disconnecting residential customers this month. New Orleans City Council sounds like at this point has come riding to the rescue. What's happened there? Yeah, so um, this was kind of prompted um, by January bills, um, January power bills in, uh, in New Orleans. Basically, residents across the city saw some really, really huge increases on their bills. We're talking about double or triple what people usually pay to the point, you know, that it was alarming enough that the council called this kind of special meeting to kind of get together and figure out what was going on. So I think that this was in part a reaction, I mean, in large part a reaction to that. Um, But of course, you have the underlying continuing coronavirus crisis that, you know, continuing latency of our tourism and hospitality industry. And so there are certainly other justifications for, for putting a moratorium um, on this right now. And, and like you said, another part of this is timing. Um, there hasn't been an official moratorium since July 31st, but they haven't, 
been shutting off residential customers, but they did announce that starting in February, they were going to. They started sending out some notifications to customers that were deep in debt. And, and there has been, we found out during this meeting, you know, they said that tens of millions of dollars in debt has, has racked up um, just in New Orleans alone since the beginning of the pandemic. And, and I should add that this is going to include a moratorium on late fees. Now, this is new for New Orleans. We never had that, even in the summer. And actually, what we wrote about back in, I believe it was May or April, um, the Louisiana Public Service Commission, which regulates most of the rest of the state, the utilities in, in the rest of Louisiana, they passed a moratorium on shutoffs and on late fees. They also passed a permanent um, prohibition on assessing any late fees on debt that had been accrued during the pandemic. See, New Orleans isn't covered by the Louisiana Public Service Commission. We're regulated by the city council. So we were never included in those protections. Oh, um, okay. A couple weeks after that, they, they did end up putting a, an official um, moratorium on shutoffs, but that expired at, at the end of July. And it didn't include a moratorium on late fees. It did not. Okay, but this is not a forgiveness. It's like rent. It's similar to the right. rent issue, right? You you still are going to have to pay at some point, but you're not going to be racking up late fees on it, uh, but you eventually will have to pay. So I actually got a call from um, Monique Hardin um, with the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice um, after the article came out. We chatted for a little bit, but you know something that she was really pointing out was that Kind of like what you're saying, this doesn't actually really fix any problems. Um, you know, if people are falling into debt, if people are seeing their bills, you know, increase by two or three times um, and people are still out of work, you know, this is kind of just pushing the issue further down the road. I'll say that what the city council would say is that what they did do this summer, um, they set up the city council cares program, um, which was a program to, to give um, up to $400 in bill credits to certain customers. Um, the, I think the eligibility requirements was that you had to be on unemployment at some time. So they did set that up, which, which I think council members would argue that, you know, instead of a, a, a late fee, you know, moratorium, they, they were helping people out actively with their bills. That program was never fully utilized. We never really got to the bottom of why. Um, there was, I think, something like $25 million set aside for it. They only ended up spending out like 10 or $11 million. And the program's been shut down at this point. So, you know, this is a story we're going to have to keep up with. I, I, I've been very interested in what the debt, you know, utility debt situation um, is or has become during the pandemic. And I think that over the next year or so, we'll get some more data um, and information that'll show us, you know, how many people are in trouble. In your story, you also talk about the giant increases that some customers are seeing. It's been cold, but not that cold. What, what's, this, what's the explanation for these massive increases? So I, I think there were a lot of different um, explanations given and a lot of different factors that come together on this. I don't know if we still, I, I don't know if even now we have the clearest picture on what happened with these bills, but I, I think there were a few things that definitely happened. Um, one was that it was uh, an extremely cold month. So we're talking about a jump from your December bill to your January bill here. Um, so one thing is that energy usage shot up from December to, to January. Part of that is the cold weather. Um, and then something to always keep in mind when we're talking about New Orleans energy usage is that we have a really old um, housing stock. And especially in the winter, a lot of these houses were built to be drafty. And so 
getting some of these houses to heat up or in the summer cool down can, can just take a lot of energy. So there was that. The, the billing month in January was actually longer than usual. So it was 34 or 35 days um, rather than you know 30, 31 days. The reason that Entergy gave for that is that they traditionally go out to meters and read you know what your energy usage is for the month. There was just vacation time around holidays. So um, I think every January they said, you know, that's kind of an extended billing, billing period. A few other things that happened, um, Grand Gulf Nuclear uh, Power Station in Mississippi, which uh, we own a portion of, we own the rights to a portion of the energy that it produces, has been unexpectedly offline this year a lot, but um, also in November and December, and that contributed to bill hikes as well. We also saw a couple new charges on our bills um, this winter. Um, we saw, you know, on the average residential bill, people saw a six to seven dollar increase, um, which we'll see for a long time now, um, due to the New Orleans Power Station, the new gas power, the the new gas power plant in New Orleans East, and we're all now paying an extra dollar twenty five or so for the new solar station that's been built out in the east. So altogether. Something like $8 um, came online in November and December for these new power plants. So a lot of things coming together. The other thing I want to mention is that there's a portion of this that came from, that, that will be pretty consistent across bills, and that came from things like the new power plant and um, the outage of Grand Gulf. So there's about $15 um, increase that you would have seen on your bill, a, an average residential customer would have seen on their bill whether or not they changed their energy usage at all. Um, so, so Entergy's claim is that we all saw a $15 bump based off of a lot of, you know, factors. Um, and then everything after that was just increased energy usage due to the cold snap. Yeah, I, I also wonder if, if people are seeing uh, increases that are maybe higher than previous cold snaps because more people are home during the day and they're turning up the heat a bit more than they would have if they were at work last year. Definitely. And so that's actually been a big theme um, you know, all year is that energy residents, I mean, all year have been paying more in energy bills than ever before. So, you know, energy has lost a lot of money by their commercial customers, for example. But, you know, we saw on earnings calls, I mean, Leo Denault, the CEO of energy, you know, he had a couple lines where he's like, the, the residents really came through for us this year. Um, so you know, a lot. And so We've been paying, you know, energy costs like crazy. So a lot of that burden has been shifted up, you know, from employers to employees and, and everything like that. But there were a lot of allegations that this all has something to do with the new advanced meter, um, the new advanced meters that Entergy is installing. Um, so these are the, the meter, the traditional meters, um, Entergy employees have to come out and, and every month and read and see how much power you've been using. This is kind of like the next generation of utility meter. So um, it can be read remotely and you can read it throughout the month and you can get more um, statistics based off of it. And you can do more things like demand response. But some people are seeing the correlation between getting their, their new meter installed and these, these big bill hikes. I don't think we have nearly enough evidence to say whether that's true or not. We just were installing advanced meters throughout the year and people are using more energy now. So it might be more of a correlation than a causation. But I think it's worth mentioning because a lot of the public comments um, were people saying, I just got this new meter. I thought it was going to make things better. And now I see this bill. Um, so right. I think that's definitely something that we'll be looking at as well. Okay. 
That's a good point. Last week, we talked about the communications district's purchasing of new software for the entire law enforcement system. You have an update on that. What's going on? The crux of the issue here is that the software we're talking about is going to be primarily used by the NOPD um, to store their very extensive records. Um, so basically what the system is, is it's a cloud-based service where you can store all these records. And then on top of that, there's all these analytic tools that makes it easier to dig through all that data automatically and with these automated tools rather than manually. Now, the reason why we're reporting on it is twofold. Um, the first reason is that we're looking at some very powerful software here, and there are definitely some surveillance um, considerations here um, in terms of how this data is utilized and, and how you know um, it's, it's analyzed. And we write about that. The, this, the second issue is that the Orleans Parish Communications District is an independent body, a state-created body that doesn't function under all the same rules that the city does. And now the concern here and the reason why we're covering the issue is to make sure that the city isn't routing purchases through a, a state-created agency in order to um, avoid certain procurement rules. So to explain that a little bit further, under local laws, the city is required to do a competitive bidding process for professional services contracts, which OPCD has determined that this is. They've just categorized this um, under professional services rather than goods and materials. Under state law, um, OPCD actually isn't required to go through this kind of competitive bidding process. So because the purchase was routed through OPCD, um, they never went through any sort of public formal bid process. They weren't required, required to by law. Um, now it gets tricky because although OPCD is purchasing it, um, is paying the upfront costs of around $2.2 million, the annual maintenance costs, which is about half a million dollars a year, will be paid by the NOPD, um, you know, which is under the central city government. So what we had previously written about was, you know, while it seems legal for OPCD to do this without a, a public bid, um, it was unclear how the city is now going to sign a maintenance contract um, without going through a competitive bid process. Okay. So it's kind of setting up this weird scenario where we've purchased the software initially, but the city might have had to go through a competitive bidding process to get this maintenance contract. Um, anyway. There was a meeting of the Orleans Parish Communications District this week. Um, they finalized the purchase and basically said that there's a legal mechanism they can use by which the city will sign a cooperative endeavor agreement with the communications district rather than a contract directly with the company. Um, and they say that this will, you know, is within um, legal bounds and won't cross any lines in terms of public bid laws. I called that. I, I was going to say, uh, Charles, you theorized that that's how they would do it. Yeah, I guess I've gotten a couple of reactions of people being, well, this is clearly skirting, you know, a law that was set up to prevent exactly this, skipping the public bid process. You know, you read the law and this clearly looks like a way to avoid it. I guess what I'd say is, is you know, I'm not a lawyer. I think through my time reporting with the lens, I think one very interesting thing has been noticing how laws don't quite have a formal meaning until someone decides it has a meaning or that meaning is then challenged in court and a court rules that it's something different. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I think there's some frustration when people think that, you know, there might be a violation of the law here and why, you know, what's the next step, what happens and why are they just allowed to say that this is okay? Um, I think that this is how it works in more situations than, than you might think. Mm. Um, and so, 
this is the way it's going to stand unless someone challenges it in court, which, I, you know, seems unlikely. Right. Why might the city have wanted to avoid the public bidding process? It's interesting. I, I um, well, I think if you're the city and, and you're in the seat of government, um, you trust yourself, right? You're not as worried about, you know, yourself being corrupt or yourself, you know, having line um, intent. I think that the public bid process is really important. I think it can also be a huge pain. Um, and I think it can also, you know, sometimes you just get really excited about one piece of software, but, oh, it's $100,000 more expensive than this other piece of software that we don't like as much. So we're now bound to get this software that we don't like as much um, uh, because it's cheaper. So I, I think in, in the case, it, well, if, if you treat it as a professional service, the, the cost is only a part of the this selection process. Basically, the logic of a pr professional service as opposed to a, a, a materials bid is with a materials bid, like concrete is concrete, right? So you're going to you're gonna have to go with the cheapest concrete vendor. With a professional service, a, a lawyer isn't a lawyer, right? So, so cost is a consideration, but it's not the only consideration. Assuming that someone wants to get around the law, and I'm not saying that's what's happening here, one might do it in this case because they like what this vendor is providing based, you know, based on what they know, but they are concerned that they may not meet some, some other considerations that go before these, these selection committees. Like maybe, for example, they don't have a, uh, a minority DBE subcontractor, which is a pretty big part of the professional service selection process. So, you know, it could be many different reasons. Costs could be part of that consideration as well. Another reason that they might want to put this through OPCD might not even be related to the public bid law, but more related to money. Um, so, like I said, OPCD is covering the upfront $2.2 million um, that this is going to cost. Now, because it's a separate agency, you know, the city can't just, you know, claw money from OPCD to go pay for something else. So, I mean, they've been trying to be creative with budgeting this year, especially. Um, so it might have just been an opportunity they saw where oh, there's a little bit of extra funding in OPCD and the best use might be, you know, something that the NOPD will use, but we can't really access that money in that way. The other thing that I wanted to mention, you know, that I think is interesting is, you know, we're talking about professional services versus, you know, goods and materials. Um, so the prior records management system, um, I, I'm, it, it appears that it was procured as a goods and good slash material. Um, and the reason for that is that I think at, at, at that time, we own that software outright and, and we store that data on actual servers, on actual hardware. And I think that you're seeing a broader trend when it comes to software where it's going to more of a subscription fee service kind of model rather than an actual purchasing model. And, and you might be, you know, I, you might have experienced that yourself noticing that Microsoft has moved to an annual subscription model rather than just buying Microsoft Office. The same for Adobe Photoshop has turned that way. So, you know, I, I do think that there is a broader movement here where um, we're going to start procuring software in um, ways that aren't traditional. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting point how moving to cloud-based services can arguably change the nature of the contract, whereas before they were using sort of these customized in-house, these customized in-house software systems that were just built for the city so you're buying a product. Now you're moving to something that's cloud-based so you can, so, so a city, uh, an assistant city attorney or an attorney for OPCD can look at it and say, well, no, we're not buying a product. We're buying a, a service, buying a, a maintenance services for, for a cloud-based system.
Right. Well, I mean, in the past, they were like literal investments. Now we the same thing is happening in the schools where now you have to buy an annual subscription to a textbook. Like totally. What's the time frame on this thing? How long does it take before they start up this subscription, this and install the software and start using it? What happened this week is they finalized the the financing agreement for how they're going to pay for this. There still will need to be a CDA signed between um, the city and OPCD. Um, so I guess that is one more step, but I don't think that. Um, I don't think that they're gonna find much uh, pushback there. Okay. Is there any indication that this will make uh, records easier to access for the public? No. <laughs> I don't know. All right, well, great work, all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See ya. Bye bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>